I invite you to open your Bible to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 to 10, and it will also be uh, on the screen for you to follow along. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a giant chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw the throne, and seated on it, on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, Over such the the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur with the beast and the false prophet, where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. And then we like to say together, thanks be to God. So six times in today's text, it it references a thousand years. The millennial reign of Christ. The millennium. Christians have debated the, the meaning and the interpretation of this text forever. And there are basically three interpretations, each within historic Christian orthodoxy. They're they're held by Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians. They they just interpret the thousand years differently. So my goal isn't to add fuel to that debate. There's plenty of of fuel for that debate going around. My goal is to interpret these 10 verses and and then to apply it to our lives to see what God has to say for us as best I can from God's self-disclosure and try to make it make sense for you and for me. Revelation is a divine act. Interpretation is a human responsibility. Divine uh, inspiration guarantees the truthfulness of God's word, that God's word is is reliable and and true and, and, and it is It is inspired by God. Interpretation, though, is a human function. So the Bible is infallible and absolutely reliable, but preachers, 
not so much. We are definitely not infallible, right? <laughs> so before we get into this very much debated text, would you join me in, in a quick word of prayer? So God, I know now of, of, of every Sunday that I preach, Lord, I need to rely completely on you. But now so much knowing that this is a text that can be uh, preached in so many different ways and understood in so many different perspectives, Lord, so many different approaches and interpretations. I, I ask you, Father, to uh, guide me to speak a word that is true and reliable and applicable, but Lord God, that more than anything that helps us draw closer to your Son, our Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So there are three interpretations uh, they're known as premillennialism. Uh, these are going to be $5 fancy words, folks. There's three of them. Premillennialism, meaning Jesus comes before or pre the thousand years. Postmillennialism, you already know the answer. Jesus comes post or after the millennium. And amillennialism. And the preface, uh, when you put a, a prefix of a uh, before a word, it, it makes it mean the opposite. So literally it would mean no millennium, but this interpretation doesn't teach that there's no millennial reign of Christ. It just interprets it that, that this thousand-year period is a symbol, like all of the other symbols that we've seen throughout Revelation, pointing to a, a greater spiritual reality. That long period of time, known as the church age, from Jesus' first coming, his first advent, Christmas, until his second coming. So let me just break it down briefly. And, and you Bible scholars out there, forgive me for this very brief, broad brush overview of these three positions uh, or interpretations of, of this text. But here you go. Pre-millennialism. It treats uh, it, or interprets that Jesus will return before this millennial period. And most interpret that thousand years as a literal thousand years. Not 990 years, not a thousand and one years, but 1,000 years. Ruling from a world headquarters somewhere in the world. Deceased Christians will be raised. Those, who, those believers who haven't died will be given resurrected bodies. Uh, an angel will throw Satan in a pit, and Christ will bring peace on earth. Unbelievers will continue about their, their daily lives. They'll, they'll be born, they'll grow up, they'll live life. Many, but not all, will, will turn to Christ in a thousand-year period. But that thousand-year period will end with a great battle of Armageddon. Satan will get one last shot, but he'll lose. So post-mill, for short, uh, teaches, uh, the, the teaching tends to interpret Old Testament promises about the restoring of Israel as a nation state, uh, as that status as an as a official nation state, as pointing to the future, future millennial reign of Christ. And so 1948, when the nation of Israel was founded as a, as a modern-day Israel, was a really big deal. It's faithful, if faithfulness to the text was measured by which of these three positions is most popular in American evangelicalism, or, or which one has 
the most backing and money and books and movies, pre-mill would win hands down. So that's pre-mill. Post-millennialism, post-mill, teaches that there is only one return of Christ the King, but it is after this millennium, which is understood symbolically. So, so now before Jesus returns, this is the time from Christmas until his second coming. This is the time of great expansion and growth of Christianity. This would be considered the time, the, the golden age, if you will, of global missions and gospel advancement. But things can only get better from this perspective. That ultimately societies everywhere are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. After the millennium, just before Jesus returns, then Satan will be released one last time, have one final shot, and then he'll fail. So if faithfulness to the text is measured by the degree of confidence in the transforming power of the gospel, then post-mill is the best interpretation. Pre-mill, again, this is, forgive me for just a generalization, but pre-mill is generally pretty pessimistic about history. They're kind of looking at what's going on around and think, well, you know, everything's going to hell in a handbasket anyway. We're just waiting for Jesus to come back. But post-mill takes a very positive, optimistic look at history, especially when Christendom ruled, when Europe was overtly Christian. They see kings and queens and nations being built, savage lands being conquered, so many being converted, baptized as Christian. The Puritans, when, when they came uh, over to the continent, they envisioned creating a millennial reign in the new world. America's original theologian, Jonathan Edwards, taught in the 18th century a post-millennial view. And, and this concept of the advancement of the gospel, it informed world missions. It, it informed our own nation's doctrine of manifest destiny, that, that we are here by God's sovereign grace to come to expand across the continent and to claim native lands and to convert all to faith in Christ. Amillennialism understands the revelation of Jesus Christ as a form of writing known as apocalyptic writing, prophetic writing, writing that, that uses powerful Old Testament symbols meant to be understood first symbolically, not literally. Now, sometimes this view takes that a little bit too far. It's seen as things being so symbolic and not literal that they don't really make any difference. This view leaves so many things to be interpreted in Revelation as only symbolic, not seeing the reality that they point to. Now, you, you've heard me say throughout this series, if you've been with us, that the symbols point to greater, very real realities. John is here recording what he sees, not what happened chronologically. John says over and over again, I saw I saw this, I saw that. He doesn't say, then this happened, then this happened. He, he's recording what he sees. And I've actually mentioned as well that 
there's a, a repetition, there's a cycle within Revelation of different scenes being repeated, but from different vantage points, almost like a, like a sports replay, like a slow-mo from a different perspective that we see repeated throughout the Revelation. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when we read the Gospels, we first look at them in their literal, plain-spoken truth. That they are recordings of eyewitness accounts meant to clearly articulate what happened. So when it says Jesus went from, from uh, Galilee to Jerusalem, we don't look at that, well, symbolically, what does that mean? Well, where did he go? No, it means he went from point A to point B, and he met people, and he ministered, and, and did miraculous things. That's a different type of writing than apocalyptic writing. The word apocalypse means revealing. Revealing something in the spiritual world. Revelation reveals the spiritual realm, which is very much real and very much literal, so that believers will be blessed and that we'll have a heavenly perspective so that we can conquer in this life. That means so that we can have, have success in our faith and be used by God. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So I pray that this whole series has been a blessing for you. I know it has been for me. A symbol isn't meant to be taken literally, but it does point to something that's very real. That is the case in this passage throughout all of Revelation. We have here a key, a pit, a chain, and six times the number 1,000. Numbers are meant to be understood symbolically before they're interpreted literally in the book of Revelation. And so we have the letter to the church in Smyrna where Jesus warns the people there. He says to his faithful church there, he says, you will suffer for 10 days and then you'll be delivered. Ten literal days? No, but you can hang in there for ten days. Maybe not with your in-laws over. That that might be a little long, but you can hang in there for ten days. You can weather that storm. That's what it's pointing to. We've seen the number 144,000. Are there literally only 144,000 saints that will be sealed by the Lamb for eternity? Only 144,000? Well, no, there's... There's an understanding that's deeper and richer. That number points us to something greater. And we've talked about this number, that 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. 12, the first 12 representing, we think, the the 12 tribes of Israel, the the 12 apostles, and then the number 10 is just a big number. And multiply that by number 10, that's even bigger. And then another 10, even bigger. And the very next scene, John says he sees a multitude of countless saints So the numbers are understood symbolically, pointing to greater realities. Why would we change that up when we get here to chapter 20? The second and third options focus on the one future return of the king. His kingdom, present, even though it's not fully visible. His kingdom, spiritual, but nonetheless real. It says in the passage that Satan is bound. He's he's tied up so that he cannot 
deceive the, the nations. It's like a kingpin, a drug kingpin who's uh, put in prison. And think about those, all the movies you've seen of drug lord movies. He's in prison, but he's still calling the shots from prison, right? On the outside, he's wreaking havoc. So that's what we see here. We, we, we see the evil one chained, held back, unable to deceive all of the nations, and yet still causing a lot of trouble. If faithfulness to the Bible is measured by how long a position was held, well then, a millennialism would be your, your pick. It's been around, recorded since the second century. St. Augustine codified it. It was a position throughout the, the late medieval period. Martin Luther, John Calvin, even with all the things that they fought about uh, against the Roman Catholic Church, this is one thing that they held in common with them. They agreed on this understanding of Christ's spiritual rule. Okay, so what does Pastor Pete think? This is, a, this is tricky because when I, uh, 30 years ago, started studying the Bible, I was told that there was only one way of understanding uh, what this scripture meant. To understand it in any other way was to not be faithful to scripture. The Bible says it, and that settles it. This is what I think. I believe the millennial kingdom described in Revelation 20 is now. I believe Jesus is king today. Anyone else in this room think that? Try to catch everybody's attention here. Are you watching? Are you paying attention? I'm not going to lecture. I'm going to preach now. I believe that he's leading his church by the spirit of God, but in the way of the lamb, not in the way of the lion, not in a conquering way, not in putting people in power so that they can subject others, but the, the way of the lamb through service, the very things we were just praying about, which means the opposite of a world understanding of superpower. Jim, Tim Chester says it this way. He says it's, it's contrary to the world. He says it's, quote, glory in shame. It's power in weakness. It's victory through death. That's the king that I follow. I follow the lamb wherever he goes, and I want you to as well. Revelation 14.4. That is the opposite of a world power. That is the opposite of saying, well, everything's going to hell in the handbasket. We'll just wait it out. No, that inspires us to wade in, knowing that we're, we're backed by the king. And I believe that Jesus won his first battle against that devil in the wilderness. And then at the start of his ministry, when he came out of that wilderness, he says this in Mark chapter 3, verse 27. He says, he, he, talks, he tells a story, and not everyone understands what he's saying, but this is what he says. He says, a man comes into a house at night, and he says, quote, to bind the strong man and to steal his stuff. What's he talking about? Bind the strong man and steal his stuff? He's talking about himself coming into what was Satan's home and stealing lost souls, rescuing people. Jesus told his disciples after they'd sent, he'd sent them out with power to go forth with authority to heal and to preach, and they came back and they were having these incredible testimonies of what God had done through them. 
he said to him, I saw Satan fall from heaven. He saw it. Luke 10, 18. And that is why Jesus could say of his work, quote, now is the time of the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. John 12, 31, 32. And I, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The cross is his glory. It's not a superpower that we understand. That's what I believe. And I believe the second fight with Satan that he won was at the cross. That's why the Apostle Paul can write in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Jesus, quote, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's referring to satanic power, quote, putting them to shame, triumphing over them at the cross, beating them at the cross. That's what I see in the Bible. That's what I think John sees. And I just humbly put that before you. That Satan's power, it says in Revelation 20, his power to deceive the nations was curbed. It was indeed flattened. Think about it. Think about it for just a moment. For centuries, God's kingdom on earth was confined to one little small strip of land, one nation, and they were rarely faithful to him. But since the cross, the message of Christ has spread globally. And millions upon billions of people who have been saved by the message of the cross and have committed their life to Jesus as Lord and Savior and King. So Satan was bound in verse 3 that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And then he's thrown into the lake of fire. The devil would like nothing more than for you to be afraid of an invisible enemy. He'd like nothing more than for you and I to be afraid of the boogeyman, of what's under our bed. He'd like nothing more than for us to be divided. Instead of focusing on fighting and winning, to have a family squabble over Scripture. That's how he wins. But the truth is, friends, if you've given your life to Christ, and you have been empowered by the authority of Christ... And Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail, Matthew 16, 18. Why? Because Jesus said to his followers in Matthew 28, the end of of the gospel, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And he says, so now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Now, if he said that, I believe it. And that does settle it. He said he's given his church authority, and he's saying, I am with you to the end of this age. Even though sometimes we can't see him. Verse 4. 
Jesus sees those who are suffering, or excuse me, John sees those who have suffered and died and for the sake of Christ. He sees them come to life and he sees them reigning with Christ. The first resurrection, verse 5, is all those who've been born again. Look at verse 6. Blessed and holy, this is the fifth beatitude in the book of Revelation. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. What an encouragement for suffering Christians. Now John wants a word of encouragement. He's a prophet, but he's, he's also a pastor. I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. See what Paul writes about what it means to be raised to new life in Christ and to reign with him. Ephesians 2, 6. Then again, we have another reference here to the final battle, verses 7 to 10. I, this is a reference to the book of Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Ezekiel 38 and 39. These are references to Israel's ancient enemies that can be found in Genesis chapter 10. So we have Genesis 10, and we have a prophecy in the book of Ezekiel, and now, lo, all these years later, John is seeing the same scene from a different perspective. He's seeing the last battle, and he's already recorded it in chapter 16 and chapter 19. As I said, it's repeated. This one has something new, though. In this version, we see the final outcome. For the evil one. The two he'd sent on before him, they've already been dealt with. Now we see Satan get his. John wants his first hearers, he wants us to be blessed right now, to be encouraged in our faith, to, to not sink back, to not engage in idol worship of the empire. To not pull back and just give in to the culture. He wants us to see a victory here. He's seen that victory. And the victory is the first resurrection of new birth. And the second is all those who die for the testimony of Jesus, he writes, and God's word have come to life. So he says, don't be afraid. Because their souls have entered into the presence of God in heaven after they died. And their deaths were in fact their victory over sin, death, and the devil. Okay, that's my interpretation. I've lost my voice, that's it. So what? How do we apply this to our lives today? Because that's what we need to do. That's, that's what I'm here for you to do. I got up really early this morning saying, Lord, I don't want to give a lecture. I want to give words of encouragement and challenge to your people. What word would you have for us to hear? And God turned me to a passage in, in the Gospels, in Mark chapter 9. Because there are times in our life when we know there's no other option than God. There are times in our life as believers in Christ when we know there's no other option. There's no other way. Only trusting in God's plan and God's timing can we get through whatever the situation that we're facing. There are times when there's nothing we can do to change our circumstance, and yet we know God is sovereign, He's real, He's present, and He's good. 
And so we turn to God. As hard as those times are, those are times when, when faith comes alive. Those are, are times with the greatest potential to grow your faith like gangbusters when you, when you have no one else to turn to but the living God for help. So why, in the midst of a pandemic, when there's nothing that we can do, when we're not in control, when no one really knows what's going on, does anyone really know what's going on? All the facts keep changing. This is a perfect condition for your faith to grow. Why are you so worried? Why in these perfect conditions did you lose your temper with your kids this week? Why did you lose your cool at Fred Meyer? Why did you vent to your friends about your spouse and growing tired of whatever he or she's been doing? Now's the time, more than ever, to rely on God, to believe God is in control. Why are you so down? Why is your soul so disturbed within you? Why do you feel so far from God? Why is it when you have a, a time in God's word, what we would call a devotion or, or quiet time, as, as often as that might happen, why is it seems so shallow? Why do your prayers feel so weak? Am I talking to you? I'm, I'm talking to me. Am I talking to anyone? When your mind is worried and anxious, you're not fully believing God is in control and that he's got this. Instead, you're thinking you still need to be in control. It's still on you. You've got to solve it. You've got this. It's up to you to figure out. You'll carry this. You'll carry it for other people. You'll carry their junk and your own. You'll get through this some way, somehow. You're not meant to. When your mind is consumed with your bank account, you're believing money provides security rather than your Savior. When you yell at your kids for leaving a mess, you're believing your comfort comes from an orderly house rather than the, the God of all comfort. When you're upset over the uncertain, uncertainty of our future and the lack of stability that is legitimate that we're feeling, but when you're upset by it, you and I are failing to believe that we are truly a part of God's kingdom and that this is not our home. Every hour that goes by, when I fail to pray for God's mercy and grace, is an hour that I'm telling God, I got this. I'm good instead of relying on him every hour of every day. And then I wonder, why am I not living by faith? Why am I so worked up, stressed out, tired? And this is what happens in Mark chapter 9. I won't read the text, but I just want you to open your Bible there if you have time to. Maybe read this on your own. Read this as a family. But let me just tell you the story. Mark chapter 9, a, a father desperately seeks healing for his son. Since childhood, his son is, 
has been ravaged by some type of evil spirit. That's the best they could understand what was happening. Foaming at the mouth, unable to speak or talk, throwing his body all over. And this father is desperate. He's done everything he can in his power. He's taken him to the doctors. Now he's taking him to the disciples of Yeshua, the rabbi from, from Nazareth. And they can't do anything. Why? Well, because they're debating among themselves. See, Jesus took three of them, Peter, John, and James, off on an adventure. Now the, the nine are left behind, and they're debating among themselves. They're getting into a fueled debate, and they're unable to help. For only a week, Jesus was gone, and this ministry that he had entrusted to these nine has fallen apart. The boy can't speak. He has seizures. Jesus returns to see this scene, and everyone's up in arms. There's a crowd gathered. The scribes are there. The religious leaders are there. They're saying, see, you're... Your disciples don't have power. They're, they're trying to figure this out. The dad says to Jesus, I asked your disciples to, to get this spirit out of him, but they were unable. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am, am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. And the father brings the boy and says, if you can do anything, please show compassion. If you can do anything. And look at Jesus' response. He says, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And I absolutely love this response, how powerful and true it is. The father says, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. This is as much faith as I have. I believe this much. Help me in my unbelief. And Jesus responds with such authority that the dad immediately sees this man has power. Power greater than the darkness that is tormenting his son for years. And at that moment, his faith comes alive. And Jesus heals this boy. I people think the boy's dead because the, the spirit shrieks and jumps out of him and the boy's like rigid, like a corpse. And he says, no, no, he, he's okay. Takes him by the hand, lifts him up. Later, goes into a house with his disciples. And they ask him, why couldn't we cast him out? And Jesus answers this way. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but what? Prayer. So how does this bring Revelation 20 down to earth to help us. Well, this is what I think. The real trouble wasn't the power of the demon, but in the spiritual weakness of the disciples who had been commissioned. They were worried. They were squabbling and deba debating among themselves. And they were waiting for Jesus to come back and fix the problem. Because why? Because they had tried to solve it in their own strength. I got this, God. I got this. We got this all figured out. We got this online ministry all figured out. I've got my house all sorted out. Everybody's fine. Everybody will be okay. Friends, 
Do you want more faith today? Believe in Jesus and take him at his word. Have faith to see the victory that you are not in control, that you do not have it all together, and that's okay. Prayer is the medicine for unbelief. Personal contact with God and prayer and and study of his word will will drive away self-reliance and fear to seek his face. Friends, I want you this week to pray expecting an answer. Study scripture expecting real practical help. Let, Let your weakness your weakness of all the things that are insecurities, let it out. Just let it out so then you can cling more to Christ. Because we believe he is king right now. And he is present. The past, it's gone. All that's in your past, the future is ahead of you and you are stepping into eternity right now when you step forward in faith, in step with his spirit. So let's stop debating about a thousand years or, or months or days or how old someone is. It's all, age is just relative number, right? What's the number that really matters? As the team comes up, I'm going to answer that question. What number really matters? One. We are one day closer to his return. You are one prayer away from seeing a miracle. Would you join me in that prayer right now? Lord God, today, this day, I pray for our friends that are watching online. The worry, the anxiety, the frustration, the guilt, the hardship, the hurting feelings, all of it, Lord God, right now we pray in Jesus' name you would speak into it with a word, oh God. Some of us are are rigid and some of us can't speak and some of us are symbolically foaming at the mouth like this child, yet God, you just came and spoke a word. So would you speak a word over us, oh God? Just answer that one prayer, that one Pressing request. Speak a word of truth, Lord God. A word of what's really real. What's really going on. That you know exactly what's happening in this world. You are sovereign over it. You are in control. And this is the most precious, most practical, most fertile time ever in most of our lives to see our faith grow. I pray, oh God, that it would. I pray that we'd set aside family debate about Scripture and we would turn to you, O God, and give you thanks this day. Have a word of testimony. Have a word of encouragement. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.